Well, good morning. I'm going to pick up now with uh, Matthew 20, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. So let's let's start as usual with a with a word of prayer. Lord God, our heavenly Father, we come to you seeking for grace and seeking for understanding of grace and seeking, Father, to understand the teaching of your dear Son. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you also will open our eyes to your ancient teachings, knowing that you wish us to understand, knowing that you wish us to get it, knowing that you wish us to live according to these principles. We pray then for understanding and especially for the strength to live and to feel and to think as you would have us, so that your Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, might be in us, without which we are none of yours. Please help us. Amen. When we start reading the Gospels uh, for the first time, maybe, we can get the impression that these are all sort of unrelated uh, bits of material, parables, healings, teachings, all sort of thrown together. And that's not the case. Uh, I mentioned before in the previous studies how the whole block of material, starting at the beginning of chapter 18, and now going through to the end of this parable, here in Matthew 20, is one block of material. And it is arranged as a chiasmus, that is, uh, different sections of it connect uh, within themselves. And if we were writing a document these days, we would have subheadings, we would have little text boxes, important point, uh, crucial issue, and uh, this kind of thing. And they didn't have those uh, mechanisms, and so they used these kind of... Uh, uh, literary devices like chiasmus uh, in order to effectively do the same thing. So all that we're reading from the beginning of chapter 18 up until the end of this parable is all one block of material, although it may have been given at different times, it's being presented by Matthew as holding together and having similar themes. And if you look at my, my commentary on Matthew under chapter 19 verse 1, you'll see the layout of that uh, chiasmus, if you're interested. <clears throat> you can really see the connection here in verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like to a man that is a householder. So there is a connection with what has, has gone before. Now, if I may just give a, a quick summary of what was going on from chapter 18 onwards, it starts in beginning of chapter 18 with the incident about the children. And the Lord calls a little one, into the closed circle of the disciples, and they don't want this to happen, and he's forcing them to expand their circle, to let the little one in. And of course they thought that it's just a kid. Uh, this child doesn't understand uh, anything, he can't be on the same level as us. And then the Lord says, be careful that you don't despise these little ones, and he goes on to say that if you don't accept a little one, it's better that you have a millstone put around your neck thrown into the sea, because he says woe to you because of offences, because of causing to stumble. So he's saying that not accepting little ones makes them stumble. And then he goes on in chapter 18 to talk about forgiveness, and it's all in the same context, and he basically says, look, if your brother sins against you, you can take him to the ecclesia, which I uh, interpreted as the synagogue discipline system, you can have it all out and chuck him out of your community. But... 70 times 7, and Luke adds, the same day. In other words, forgive without any limit, unlimited forgiveness. But he says, you know, you can, you, you can operate the lower principle, if you wish, 
uh, of taking it up with the, with the guy and only forgiving if he's repentant. But then he, the Lord tells the parable of the man who has the 10,000 talent debt and he's forgiven by grace. But then he won't forgive the person who owes him a hundred pence. And so the Lord is saying, you are the man. You are the, the, the 10,000 talent man. You are that man and you should perceive yourself as that man and therefore it show absolute forgiveness it's not even an item compared to your perception of your own sin. It's not even an item what other people have done to you. And then the Pharisees get all clever with him in chapter 19, or try to get clever, and say, what about if a man's wife uh, commits adultery? Then surely doesn't Moses say that you can't really forgive her? And the Lord, again, in that context, seems to say, look, you can divorce her if that's what you want to do, if she commits adultery, but... His standard, and putting it together with Mark 10, his standard clearly was, look, same, same deal, unconditional forgiveness. And then it goes on in chapter 19 with the issue of the rich young man. And again, the idea of, of lower levels of service and different levels of spiritual achievement comes out. Because he says to the rich young man, if you will be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor. And the man walks away. Uh, and the disciples are staggered, and they said, well, how can you, anyone be saved? And the Lord says, with God, this is possible. In other words, if the guy didn't want to do what he'd been asked to do, well, his salvation was still possible. There was grace even for the unforgiving, even for the mean uh, and ungenerous, uh, etc. And then Peter says, well, we have left all and followed you. This is now the end of chapter 19. What shall we have, therefore? And then we get this parable about the, the laborers. And at the end of it, uh, they come in verse 10 of chapter 20. The NIV says, they expected to receive more. And that is directly the connection with Peter saying in chapter 19, verse uh, 27, what shall we have therefore? Well, we did forsake all. And you say you're prepared to save the guy who didn't forsake all, even though you asked him to? Well, we did. Well, what about us then? We're going to, like, get super reward? And the Lord is saying, uh-uh. Let's have the parable of the, the laborers in the vineyard. And the whole point, of course, of the parable is at the end. And I have talked before about end stress in the parables. That is that at the end of parables, that is very often the, the crucial point. And I think that the end is crucial here, in that the whole point is that you are not saved by your works, and you who reckon that you've worked harder than the rest, if you do not accept your weaker brothers, who have not worked for so long and not worked so hard, then go your way. And we'll see at the end that that may well be the equivalent of saying, you are fired from my service. For all your hard work and all the rest of it, I actually prefer the little ones uh, who didn't actually serve me as much as you did. And this is a very hard thing. So this is not going to be an easy parable for us uh, to, to cope with. But as I say, we have to see it within that context of this whole block of material that started there at the beginning of chapter 18, talking about acceptance of little ones, acceptance of those whom we consider way beneath our level of doctrinal or spiritual uh, standard, uh, the, the husband accepting his uh, wife who's committed adultery uh, and the 
the rich young man who won't sell all that he's got, even though he was asked to and still being saved by grace, um, the man who owes you a hundred pence, who you're going to just just wave that, just scribble that, uh, the person who sins against you in personal offense, 70 times 7 per day, and you're still going to forgive them. This is sticks in our gut. Let's, let's accept it. And this is what the parable of the laborers is all about. <clears throat> well, this man is a householder, verse 1, and he's got uh, a vineyard and he's hiring laborers. Now, this is not the first time you read in the Lord's parables about vineyards and, uh, and a householder. The very same words, householder and vineyard, crop up in chapter 21, verse 33, the next chapter, <coughs> where we have the, the parable there of how uh, there was this householder at this wonderful vineyard and he sends um, all his uh, various servants uh, to it in order to get the fruit, and they beat them up, kill the servants, stone them, and then he sends his beloved son, thinking, surely they'll reference my son, and they kill him. And then he says, well, let's give out this vineyard then to uh, other men, verse 41 of chapter 21, who shall render him the fruits in their seasons? And we get the impression, oh yeah, the good old Gentiles come in there and give, give him the fruits in their seasons. But adding this parable onto that, you don't get a very happy picture, do you? Because even amongst them, there simply aren't enough workers to go and harvest this amazing fruit that there is in the vineyard. And if you stick Isaiah 5 onto that, which is another song of the vineyard, you've got a picture of God having done absolutely everything so that there should be amazing fruit in this vineyard. Only problem is that there aren't enough labourers to get it all in. Now, again, talking about labourers working in the vineyard, chapter 21 again, verse 28, the owner of the vineyard has two sons, and he says to one, will you go and work in the vineyard? He says, no, I won't. Okay. But then afterwards he sort of puts his tail between his legs and he goes and does it says to the second son, or the other son, will, will you go and work in the vineyard? Oh, yes, sir. And he doesn't go. Goes down and movies. Uh, doesn't say that, but you know. Um, the, the point is, this amazing vineyard, if you put all these stories together, the, the amazing vineyard is producing a huge amount of fruit, but there's a problem getting workers to actually get the fruit in. And it can't be mechanized. It's got to be done by actual real people. Now, there's an element of unreality, a number of elements of unreality in each of the parables. And those elements of unreality, I suggest, are like signs, are like flashing neon lights that, that point you to the sense of the whole story. Now, it's harvest time. It's harvest time. And these laborers who eventually he has to hire are standing idle in the marketplace. Why? He asks them that question, and I think it was a rhetorical question. Why? Well, when there was a desperate need for laborers, it's simply because they were maybe old, couldn't work very hard, maybe they were handicapped, they, they couldn't just do that much work, they were weak, they were lazy, maybe. They had a reputation, maybe, as being dossers, as being 
idle people. And eventually he goes out and gets these people. He's driven by his desperation to get at least some work done to do something very strange, and that is to pay a penny a day to an old, sick, weak, lazy guy who only works in some cases one hour. And you can assume he didn't work very hard in that one hour that he worked. The picture of putting all this together is that there is a huge harvest out there, and yet it is not being harvested because there aren't the laborers. And of course the Lord has said this to the disciples earlier. He, he said the harvest is huge, but pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So there's a huge harvest. That is the undoubted impression that we get from all this. And actually there's other reasons to, to, to think that the Lord thought in those terms as well. But I've given you enough uh, evidence, I think. And you take, take the, uh, the picture of the, uh, the Great Supper, where again it's a similar idea that as time goes on, there just aren't enough people in the supper, who've accepted the invitation. So he tells the servants to go out and drag in anybody who's willing to come. All you've got to do is say yes, in one sense. Uh, there's an ongoing urgency, just like there is in this parable, an ongoing urgency. He goes out three times, and he still can't find enough workers to get in this huge harvest. And the tragedy and the pressure of the whole thing, the intensity of it, is that the harvest is wasting. Yeah, stop there. I keep hearing, here in my own area in, in Eastern Europe where I've lived most of my life, and I hear in the West where originally I came from, and I hear even in Africa, on my annual trips down to Africa, which I've been doing for 30 years now, I hear so often the same story. Nobody's interested. Now, wait a minute. How can you say nobody's interested when the undoubted stress of all these stories is there's a huge interest? I'm baptizing with my own hands something like three people a week, and I have done for the last 20 or more years. In my world experience, in my life experience, my worldview, there's a huge harvest out there. I keep talking to people in all sorts of countries, on trains, buses, uh, airline waiting rooms, and, and the rest of it, doctors, surgeons, and I keep meeting interested people. Now, is that just me? Uh, am I just born lucky? Has God just got some special ministry for me? No, I'm not particularly righteous bloke or whatever. I don't think so. I've thought a lot about this, and here's what I think. Maybe I got it wrong, but here's what I think. People aren't interested in joining a denomination. That, that much is clear. Yes, no one's interested. If you're running around trying to get people to join your little social club, your little church now, they're probably not interested. You might occasionally get someone to come in uh, occasionally, but unless they marry into the club, they probably won't stay uh, for too long over the years. That's how it generally goes. Um, yeah, no, the people aren't interested, I, I agree. But if you are actually telling people, in terms of the Great Commission, the Gospel, the basic Gospel, not a, a, a sort of a, a publicity stunt or publicity exercise for your particular fellowship, uh, denominational group or club or whatever, but if you're telling people the basic Gospel and then you confront them, do you want to be baptised? You know, Jesus says 
that we each have the Great Commission. We are each to go and preach and baptize. And the Greek uh, preach and baptize, teach and baptize all nations. This is all part of the same, uh, the same word almost, certainly the same uh, idea, to teach and baptize. This is all part of the same thing. And we each have that commission. And I suggest that if you go to people, just talk to people, and teach and baptize them, talk to them and say, hey, would you like to be baptized? You'd be shocked. Now, of course, if you say, oh, well, come along to the meetings. Oh, no, 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 be, be, come to church. Be, be, come to your, your, your little backstreet church. No, not my little backstreet church. Uh, I've got a backstreet church. Um, no, be, no, no, be, people are not interested in that. But people are desperately interested in the gospel. Desperately interested. And it's not just the poor countries and the poor people. It's people all over the place. In the Western world, in the Eastern world, in the developing world, in Africa, in Asia, Australia, the, the rest of it. No matter where you go, they're searching. There is a huge harvest. You, you can't tell me there isn't. Because the whole biblical emphasis, if it's worth anything, what we're reading here is that there's a massive harvest. The only problem is people to go and get it in. It's not the lack of harvest, it's the lack of the laborers. Now, the Lord goes out, first of all, early in the morning. He also went out early in the morning, Mark 1.35, to call the disciples to to, or sorry, to pray about calling the, uh, the disciples. And a number of times you, you read about him going out to preach the gospel. Now, in John's gospel, by the way, you meet exactly the same Greek phrase, but it's translated like, I proceeded forth from the Father. And unfortunately, people have got the wrong idea that it talks about a personal pre-existence. It doesn't. It's just the very same words that you've got here about going out to, to hire laborers, or Jesus going out, as the synoptic gospels often say, he went out and preached the gospel. So then he was uh, preaching the gospel in order to get people to come and be laborers in, 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 his, uh, in his vineyard. And the Greek word translated laborer, here in, in Matthew 20 there, in uh, verse 2, is... Uh, and verse 1, it really means a toiler, someone who's really going to work hard for, for him. Now, it's quite clear then that the call of the gospel is a call to work. It is a call to do something. It is a call to mission. It is not, therefore... It is not, N-O-T, therefore, a case that when I agree with you to a certain level regarding certain theological truths, I express my agreement by getting baptized and uh, I become a member of your movement, your denomination, etc. That, that would be a misunderstanding of the, of the gospel. According to this parable, the call of the gospel is a call to toil. It is a call to work, to labor in a specific mission. And I suggest that man is never finer than, than when he has a definite mission, when he has a concrete uh, mission and aim in life. This is the root of depression. It's the, the root of illness, almost. It's the root of, of so much. When people uh, don't have a sense of mission, 
when they do not actually know what on earth they are doing existing on this planet. It is a call to, to actually do something. And what is that actual mission? It is to bring people in to harvest that great commission, to actually to, to, to harvest that harvest, to bring people into the things of God's kingdom. That's what the mission is. And you can do it. And there's a huge harvest. You just make one little effort to take the gospel to somebody, to, to teach somebody, to uh, baptize somebody, etc. You'll see, suddenly, life opens up before you. Suddenly, it all starts to make perfect sense. And so, what you see then is that there is a great labor and a great work to, to do. Now, <clears throat> The other thing is that he sees these people idle. And the Greek word that is used there, this argos, it, it literally means uh, without work. And it also does mean lazy. Uh, it's another meaning of it. Uh, it's, it's biblical meaning. It's how it's used in the later New Testament to mean lazy. But literally, as a word, it means without labor. The point is, if you're not working in the Lord's harvest, you are without work. That's who you are. And, of course, that is not what, of course, we like to, to think. When you come to the end of your days, and man goes to his long home, and uh, we start to think about our lives, and, uh, you know, either in your own mind you think about your upcoming death, or you're on your deathbed and you are facing it. What have you got to show? What have you got to show? If all you've got to show is a career, you, you've been idle. That's what the Lord is saying. If you have not gone out into the harvest and brought people in, you're just standing there idle. These guys who are standing there idle, whom he calls to work for him, these could be men with a, a degrees in accountancy, women who had medical doctors and the rest of it, who've got shining portfolio careers, uh, etc. Or it could be people who've spent their life worrying at the lower end of the social scale, how to get a slightly better apartment, how to get a car, how to meet these, these bills, and how to get slightly bigger income from social services, etc. Um, it doesn't matter who you are, what end of the social spectrum you're at. If you're not bringing in that harvest, you are, spiritually speaking, idle. Now, I know what I'm saying is not, uh, is not popular, because, of course, everybody leaks out the same old, same old excuse. Ah, but I served God by serving people. And I, I've heard this from people who've spent their lives building up multi-million uh, enterprises. I've heard it from people with careers in, in accountancy, medicine, uh, science, and from people who've basically done nothing than, than uh, live, live off uh, Social Security all their lives and been good neighbors to the bloke next door and help the lady over the road, etc., and, I, yeah, well, I, I, I spent my life serving people. Well, you know, I'm only giving my view. You can say that if you wish. But in terms of this parable, I'd say you're standing there idle, doing nothing. Because at the end of the day, as dear old, my dear friend, the late uh, Ludmilla Fyodorovna used to say, uh, how many people did you bring to Christ? And that's the question. How many people did you bring to Jesus Christ? How much of the harvest did you get in? Am I interested in, uh, you know, what you did over the road or whether you had a jaw with old Johnny next door every morning or, or whether you had a shining career in this 
that or the other. You're a bus driver, you're an accountant, you're a whatever. You're standing idle. And of course, every human being can basically say the same. Well, yeah, every human being has had a career, have done something in their lives uh, to, to, you know, watch the wheels go round as the years went by. But the, so, you know, to say, ah, but I did this for people. Well, that's what everybody else could say, quite honestly. The point is, how many people did you bring to Jesus Christ? How many people did you get under that water for Christ? How many people did you persuade of his death and his resurrection? How many people did, did, did you seriously influence, not just to get baptized, but to, to walk that path to God's kingdom, to bring forth spiritual fruit, to quit alcoholism, to quit this, to quit that, to bring forth fruit for God? And as I say, when you see a life that is suddenly taken over uh, by the principles of the gospel and, and the principles of bringing in the harvest, it's a beautiful thing to see that suddenly... All the time spent mucking around on the internet, all the time uh, wasted on this, that, and the other, and this uh, certificate, and this uh, bit of education, or whatever. Suddenly, all that stuff is no longer so important. The important thing is, I've got a woman uh, over the road who I've been chatting to, who, uh, yep, she's getting there, uh, and uh, yep, I can we going to baptize her soon, and I, I'm... I'm chatting on the internet to some fellow the other side of the world. I can't get there to baptize him, but I'm encouraging him to baptize himself or get someone else to do it. Uh, you know, and suddenly their lives change and they start to be fruitful and they, they open and blossom. And suddenly they can attach meaning to event in human life. Suddenly everything has a meaning. Now I know what I've said will, will come over as radical and I I don't care whether you think it's radical or not, but this is right out of the teaching of this parable. It's right out of the teaching of it. It's not a case of even doing a PR job for your church. It's a case of you bringing in the harvest because you have the gospel in your hands. You've got gold dust in your hand. You can go out, go out and give it to people. Well, he agreed with the laborers, verse 2. And this definitely, the Greek word definitely, carries the idea of entering into a contract. So I think that uh, the point must be labored again, that the, the contract that we enter, and you could say it's baptism when we become part of the new covenant, the promises to Abraham are made to us and so forth, uh, it's not just a signing on a dotted line that I agree with theology. It is an agreement to work, to work and to labor for him in, in, his, in his vineyard. And he, he agrees for a penny a day. And I guess the penny really does have to be interpreted as salvation. The fact it's an agreement for a penny a day implies that the harvest is going to go on for some time. And yet... The payment at the end of the first day is clearly to be interpreted as the day of judgment. It's almost as if the day of judgment, the final end of the harvest, shall be here a lot quicker than you think. And that's why I think even at the eleventh hour, he hired a man to work for just one hour, because he knew this is the last day. You could also argue that actually that implies that maybe the next day was the Sabbath that he really had to get what harvest in he could because the next day he couldn't work because it was the Sabbath. Well, if that is the implication, and I don't know if it is or not, but it, if it is, then of course that speaks absolutely to our generation. We who live 
it seems, in the days immediately before the beginning of the millennium, the Sabbath rest. We then, who are the eleventh hour laborers, I mean, if we really believe that the Lord is to come imminently, that means we are the eleventh hour laborers. And that means that our generation is the weakest, very weak. And when the uh, hard workers who've worked the whole day, 12 hours, come uh, and get their money, they complain about one specific group. And it's not the ones hired at the third hour or the sixth hour, it's the ones hired at the eleventh hour. Why I say that is because they say, these have worked only one hour. So what's stuck in their gut? What stuck in their gut was those guys, that 11th hour lot. They only worked one hour. They were obviously the, the dregs of the lot, the weakest of the lot, and that's you and me. If we think that the Lord is coming imminently, which we believe he is, and we should live as if he is, then we are the 11th hour workers. We are the weak ones. And so don't be surprised or frustrated uh, the idea that the, the body of Christ, the Ecclesia, is very weak and dysfunctional at this stage. Absolutely. Again, compare this with the marriage supper panel. Go out, bring them in. Yes, sir, I've done it, but there's still room. Look, go out again and drag in the cripples, the retards, the, 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 the deformed, the drunk, the whatever, who are lying around under the bushes. Just get them in. And that's you and me. So it's not surprising, seeing that the bar has been lowered, there's a clear impression that we get from that parable, and get it again from the parable of the, of the laborers, the bar's been lowered by the Lord because he's desperate. He's desperate that we might do at least something with the rest of our lives. At least something. Well, we're told that uh, he sent them, verse 2, he sent them into his vineyard. And this is the Greek word apostello, from where you get apostle. And I think that the great commission that you get at the end of the Gospels, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke anyway, uh, particularly in Matthew, it's kind of presaged, it's kind of heralded uh, throughout the, the Gospel record up until that point. And this is a classic example here in, in Matthew 20, that these laborers are all sent and he says to them later on, uh, verse 4, go, go into the vineyard. Just as he's going to say at the end of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go, go into all the world, I send you. You're all my apostles, you're all apostello, you're all my sent ones. Well, these men were standing idle, I've said, in the marketplace, verse 3, and I said that argos means without work, but it is also translated lazy. I mean, Titus 1, verse 12 uses the word where he, he quotes a, a, a commonly held view that all Cretans are lazy, are argos. Or 1 Timothy 5.13, he warns about certain women who he says are argos. They're lazy, and because of that, they go around gossiping and interfering because they don't want to work. So these people are there for various reasons, not being hired by anybody else. But one reason is because they're lazy, and that's you and me. We're lazy. And we have still been chosen. And all I can say is that all you can do is to say, thank you, Lord, uh, that you chose me right at the end. I'll do what I can. I know I'm a cripple. I know that I'm old and I know I'm weak and I can't do that much. But I'll do what I can in the final closing uh, 
evening shades of this day, I will go out and do what I can for you in your harvest. And he finds these guys in the marketplace. And they're standing, it says, in the marketplace. Not sitting. It's normal that laborers for hire sit in the Middle Eastern harvest sun. But these guys are standing. In other words, they are willing. They are willing to go. And I think basically that's what it comes down to. It's a bit like the Maid Supper parable. How do they get in, those, those street people? Just because they were willing, in a sense. In one sense, all you've got to do is say yes. And that is exactly, I think, what the Lord here is, uh, is teaching, that these guys are willing and ready. Okay? So, with all your baggage and all your background and all the reasons why nobody wanted you, okay, you come. Now, the idea of the marketplace. Earlier on, Matthew eleven sixteen, the Lord has spoken about his own disciples like children in a marketplace, appealing to their fellows. And that's how he likens the preaching of the Gospels, what he likens the preaching of the Gospel to, to uh, children sitting in the marketplace. And now he goes into the marketplace and asks people to go and work. And so then the children in the marketplace, appealing to their fellows, become Jesus. He identifies himself with the little ones, which is exactly what we've seen uh, in this earlier section of this material in Matthew 18, where the Lord says, if you don't accept the little one, you don't accept me. Whatever is right, I will give you. Verse 4. And yet, and this again must have stuck in the gut of the, the guys who worked uh, the whole day for the agreed sum of a penny. At the end of it, the Lord says, yes, I'll give you what is right, here's a penny. It wasn't right. All that is within us, our sense of justice, human justice, cries out that this isn't right. This is not right. You said you, you didn't actually promise to give them a penny, you just promised to give them what was right. And yet you gave them the same as the guys who worked so hard all day long. There's something wrong here. Yeah, there's something wrong with human thinking. The point is, of course, that no matter how hard you work, that is not related to salvation. And, of course, the, we are to imagine these uh, hired laborers coming up for their pay, and there's a, a slight, uh, again, element of unreality in the way that he calls the last to come first to get their money. Well, you would think that the appropriacy of the situation would be that the guys had worked longest, they came first, got their money, and then the guys who came last, they come last to get their payment. But the Lord seems to really like these people, these lazy ones, these idle ones, and he calls them and gives them their money first, and he gives them their penny which is, he says, that which is right. Well, how come it's right? Well, it's not right in a human sense. But God imputes righteousness. Now, looking at a bit closer at this word right, you see it's dikaios, which is the word for righteousness. I will give you whatever righteousness is needed. And they get a penny a day. So, actually, these whole ideas, and even the Greek words, of giving, or gift, righteousness, etc., this is 
exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans. Romans 5.17 specifically talks of the gift of righteousness, using the same words. I will give you what is right. I will give you righteousness. And, you know, Paul puts it in so many words, what is here, I think, only implied in the parable. He says that we are sinners, but we are counted right, although we are not. And this is, of course, why they, they complain. Uh, the, the, the harder workers complain. See, let's go over to verse 12. Uh, these have worked but one hour, and you have made them equal unto us. And I suggest that you might uh, circle in your Bibles the word worked in verse 12, and the word made in verse 12, because these are the same, exactly the same Greek words. They have worked only one hour, and you have worked them equal unto us. In other words, he counted them as if they had worked what they hadn't done, and gave them a penny anyway. So labor and righteousness, etc., are all imputed. Now, keep remembering the context, Matthew 18, 19, and so forth, that the Lord is telling the disciples, you've got to accept the little one in your closed circle. Open your circle, please. Accept this little one, this little child, and children were not accepted as persons in the first century world, uh, Impute righteousness, forgive, absolutely without limit. Feel yourself to be the 10,000 talent person who's got the 10,000 talent debt where you're chief of sinners and uh, the rest, well, you know, I'm just glad to see you saved as well. Rather than demanding what is owed to you, rather than saying, uh, I will uh, not forgive you, you sinned against me, well, I shall drag you through the uh, ecclesial discipline process. If your brother sins against you, you can do that, the Lord says, but if your brother sins against you, 70 times 7 forgiveness per day. This is the context here. But the Lord is really saying that it's not about all this. And again, this speaks very much to those who fear that they have not done enough. It's not, in that sense, about that. It's about whether you've agreed the contract, whether you're standing there ready and willing, and with all your weakness and dysfunction, you are sent into the harvest. And you say, well, the sun's going down now. I can't believe this. But I, I, will, I will do what I can for you, Lord. And I believe you. That you said you'll give me what is right. I believe you. And then judgment day comes, and you've got a penny, and you're walking away looking at this penny, thinking, I shouldn't have this. There are times in the parables where we are intended, I think, to fill out the story. And often those bits that we're intended to imagine are pretty crucial. These guys walking away, holding their penny, thinking, wow, I shouldn't have this. This is you and me walking into God's kingdom. So all issues of, ah, oh, but I worked harder than her, ah, oh, her, well, she never really came to the meetings, uh, and, uh, well, him, well, yes, you know, he was questionable, funny, funny chap, uh, funny sort of bloke, uh, blah, blah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and all, unfortunately, said and felt with a, a sense of superiority within ourselves, um, you know, this is the whole point, that you are to walk away as shaking your head, I shouldn't have this, as the 10,000 talent man should have been, 
thinking, wow, I've been forgiven so much. You owe me just a hundred pennies. Big deal. Don't even, it's not even an item any longer. So then, he went out, verse uh, 6, and he found others. This connects with the earlier teaching in this block of material uh, in chapter 18, verse 13, about the Lord finding the lost sheep. God is in search of man. Uh, Jesus is in search of man. And we might say that I'm in search of God, I've been searching for Jesus, I've been searching for the truth, and oh, I found it. I found him or whatever. You know, God was in search of you. And that's why there is this special uh, flash uh, that happens when the God who is in search of man finds the man who is in search of God. And don't think that God is somehow indifferent, that he's like, I've given you my son, I've given you my word, it's over to you now, you figure it out, and it's a puzzle to be solved, and when you solved it, well, big deal, you get baptized, and then if you keep your nose clean, I'll, yeah, sure, you'll be in the kingdom, over to you, look here, I'll meet you at Judgment Day, right? We'll talk later. No, no. <laughs> this could not be, this could not be further from the truth. God is in search of man. And, and there is a wonderful passage in Jeremiah where God speaks of himself searching the city squares to see if he could find a man who could stand in the bridge. That he searched the streets, he went up and down the streets and round the squares and round the roundabouts, can find anyone. God is in search of man. And when he finds us and we find him, as I say, there is that connection, there is that flash, which means that all the angels in heaven rejoice that one person who... Who repents. Now, of course, in the storyline, the man had, had noticed, of course, these 11th hour guys, because he'd been out of the 3rd hour, he'd uh, been out of the 6th hour, he'd been out, out of the ninth hour, so he surely had noticed these fellows that he picked up at the 11th hour. Why didn't he pick them all up in one shot? Why didn't he tell them all to go? It could be that he realized that those 11th hour people that he picked up at the 11th hour really just were so feeble they could only do one hour's work. But he was sensitive in what he called people to do. He doesn't call people to do more than they can do. What it could simply be, as I say, that he was driven by the, by, by the tragedy of the situation, by realizing that the sun is now going down, the day of opportunity is ending, that let's take anybody. Lowering the bar, just as we saw in the parable of the marriage supper. So then, he, when he asks them, why do you stand here, idle, all the day? I think that that is rhetorical. It's not that he wants to find information. He knows. He's saying, look, why, do you, why are you idle all the day? Why did nobody hire you? And you know, they answer truthfully, well, we're here because nobody else would take us. And in their own minds, they were thinking, yeah, well, I am a lazy so-and-so. I'm not a hard worker. I've got a broken arm. I know I, I'm, I'm like I am. That was all elicited by the Lord's rhetorical question, why are you standing here? And once they got to that point, okay, right, you're on. Let's go. You can, you're fit for my service. So it's typical. Once people are convicted of their sinfulness, of their weakness, then the Lord can use them. And this is exactly what happened with the Great Commission. He rollicks those disciples, you fools and slow of heart to believe. And once they're there with their eyes on the ground, pushing their, their big toes into the, uh, into the sand in awkwardness, okay, you're ready, okay, 
Now, I'll send you with my full commission into the whole world. Well, when evening came, verse 8, he called them. And this Greek kaleo is used both about calling to the gospel or to the truth in this life as well as the calling to judgment of the last day. And so, really, you can figure then that really we are on our way to judgment. The call that we had to the gospel was also a call to appear at judgment day. And that is why the Lord says, if you're on your way to judgment and you've got a problem with your brother, you really better sort it out. Well, he calls them to give them their hire. And this might appear to contradict the whole message that we've got in Romans, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So why this talk about wages and hire when it's all a gift? Well, I think we have to work through the parable that actually the guys, the 11th hour guys and so forth, were simply told, I'll give you what is right. They weren't actually promised a penny a day. And they walk away into the sunset with their penny, thinking, wow, I should never have had this. So then, you, you could argue that the whole story is a subversion. It's a subversion of the whole idea of wages. It's as if the Lord is saying, look here, this wasn't about a penny a day, was it? This was just that I, I wanted to give you this. I, I needed you to do the work, and I wanted to save you. And I wanted to give you a penny. So there you are. It wasn't actually about earning at all. You could take it like that. And yet there is, all the same, a very definite teaching in the later New Testament about receiving wages. I would say that the, the penny is salvation, but that is not to say that we do not receive wages, that we don't receive eternally some consequence for how we have chosen, or the level upon which we've chosen to live life in this world. And it's particularly so in the context of preaching, of bringing in the harvest in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8 and 14, where we're told that each shall receive his own reward. And this is the same word translated here in Matthew 20, higher. We shall each receive our own reward for our labor. But, we're told, that that reward is that which shall abide the fire of judgment. And what is that? Well, he says some people build wood, hay, and stubble that won't get through. Other people build gold that will get through the fire. But even if the wood, hay, and stubble is burnt up, you yourself shall be saved, yet through fire. I think what he's saying then is that what you've built is the quality of your converts and what you've done for others. And if they don't get into the kingdom, if you just tapped a bloke under the chin and stuck him under water and didn't do any more for him and he turned away, well, that's wood, hay, and stubble, and he shall be burnt up uh, at the day of judgment. And uh, But you yourself shall be saved, even though your converts weren't, uh, although you too will have to pass through fire, yet so as by fire, uh, as the AV says in, uh, there. So what you could say then is that your reward, according to what your wages, according to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, is those who come through the fire of judgment in the last day of those that you've worked for in harvesting the harvest. And Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. He says, what is my crown of rejoicing? Is it not you at the day of judgment? 
It's as, as if he's saying, you are my victory wreath. If you get there, then that is my kudos eternally. And that's not the only time he uses that idea. He uses it to the Philippians as well, where he seems to be saying that uh, my reward is you. And this is how it is. If you labor for others and bring them to Christ and, and mentor them in Christ and bring them through into God's kingdom, then they eternally will be part of your wages. That will be a, a, another dimension to your eternity. Rather than if you had your career, couldn't care the tuppence about anybody else, if you don't think that at the time, uh, just to... Uh, thought, yeah, in the religious part of my life, I believe in Jesus and I shall be resurrected to eternal life by his grace, and I believe in that, but uh, for this life, I'm just going to get on and do my thing. All right, you can do that, and I believe by God's grace it's big enough for you, but then how are you going to be in the kingdom? It's going to be a far lower level of fulfillment. Uh, there's not going to be uh, those dimensions to your eternity, which there will be for somebody like Paul, for example, who spent his life bringing other people uh, to Christ. So he begins at the last. And as I say, it's as if he wants to emphasize that he has this special attraction to these people. And in verse 10 in the NIV, but the harder workers supposed, or NIV, they expected they'd get more. And that, as I said at the start, is going right back to Peter saying, well, we left everything. Chapter 19, verse 27, what should we have, therefore? He expected more. Now, this word translated supposed, it's uh, nomizo, and that is the verb of the noun nomos, the law. They thought that by law, they should have more. Well, no, because the contract, and that's again a legal term in verse 2, they agreed, they had a contract, this is a legal term, for a penny a day. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean that it's against the law? Well, Effectively, they put themselves uh, above God's law because they assumed that their human sense of justice was actually the ultimate uh, source of appeal and the ultimate law, when the ultimate law is that of grace. Well, they murmured, didn't they? Because they thought they should have had more. And I think that Jesus had to teach Peter this again in John 21, 15, where he says three times, with the same word, do you love me more than these? And I wonder if the these in view is in fact the other disciples. He's saying, look Peter, you did reckon, didn't you, that although all of them should betray me and run away from me, you would not, right? You thought that you loved me more. Is that really the case? And, you know, this parable is, I think, partly spoken specifically to Peter, because he's the one who said, well, what should we have therefore? Why we have more? We expect to have more than that rich man who didn't sell all that he had, and yet you say that his salvation is possible anyway by grace, even though he didn't sell what he had and give to the poor. He didn't rise up to the highest level, if you will be perfect, so what you have and give to the poor. Um, and so this is, I think, partly spoken all to, to Peter. They complain that we have carried the burden and heat of the day. But this, these are exactly the same words used about carrying the cross. 
And it's no accident that straight after this parable in Matthew 20, when it finishes there, what does Jesus do? He goes on to talk about the cross. And he talks about drinking the cup that he is going to drink of. And he says in verse 22, you know, are you able to drink of this cup? And his cup was clearly his death. And to be baptized at my baptism, and they say, verse 22, no question, we are able. We are able. Just like they had said, as it were, the, uh, the, the hard, strong laborers, but we have borne the burden. We've carried the cross. And we've, we've gone through the heat of the day. Well, the heat of the day, these words are used to Peter 3, 10 and 12, about the day of judgment. The heat of that day. And they hadn't been through that. They had not really carried the cross. They had not really uh, gone through the, the heat of judgment. They thought that their good works and their hard works were enough. So he says to one of them, friend, I do you no wrong. Now this comes to the end of the parable, the end stress at the end of the parable. We, we should be highly sensitive now to how the, the, the cookie's going to crumble, how the story's going to end. Friend, now what does this mean? It could mean you're okay. You know, I don't agree with you, but you're still my friend. You're good. You're going to be in my kingdom. You're going to be last in the kingdom because you have this problem against your weaker brothers. And because of that, you're going to be the last. But you're going to be in my kingdom, and I'm still going to call you friend. But you could argue another way because it's the same word, friend, same Greek word, used in chapter 22, verse 12, for the man who's condemned because he thinks his own clothing is good enough. And uh, the Lord is going to come to him and say, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? Oh, well, I thought mine was good enough. Didn't want to take your imputed righteousness, the gift of righteousness. Okay, friend, out. You're condemned. You're out of the story. And, of course, the same to Judas, who for sure is condemned. Friend, why have you come? So you could say that uh, this really means that, uh, well, the connection with the other usages of the word friend, that these people are going to be rejected. And when he, he says at the end, take what yours is, literally take away, go away, take it and go, and go your way. Now, Harry Whitaker and his studies in the Gospels is a great fan of the idea that this means you're fired. Now, I'm not sure he's right, but he might be. I'd put it like this. There is the implication in this final end of the story that these hard workers are fired. Yes, Harry's right on that. He could be right. And the idea of friend being associated with others who are condemned could be. But then... It also, the, the fact they go away with their penny, take what yours is, like it's yours, and if the penny is salvation, then you could argue that no, they're going to be last in this new system of things, but they're still saved. Why the difficulty in interpretation? I believe it's intentional, because it fits in with everything we've seen in this whole block of material starting in chapter 18. If you... Uh, don't want to forgive your brother if he sins against you? Okay, you can drag him through the process of the ecclesial discipline system, which I suggested was a synagogue discipline system, and you can chuck him out of your community. But, uh, hum, 70 times 7 forgiveness per day, 
if your brother sins against you. Uh, aren't you the 10,000 talent man? Isn't that how you are to perceive yourself? The man with a colossal debt, unpayable debt, who was forgiven by grace, who for him, anyone's debt to him should be not an item. Uh, the man, the rich young man, if you will be perfect, sell all that you have and give to the poor. But the implication is if you don't, with God all things are possible, you can still be saved. It's this different levels business. So you could take it as meaning on one level, yeah, look, they shouldn't have had that attitude to their weaker brethren, to their far weaker brethren. But they'll be, because of that, they'll be last in the kingdom of God. But they'll be there. Or you could say, no. Yeah, Jesus does also say, in the same block of material we've looked at, if you don't accept a little one, it's better for you that a millstone is hung around your neck and you're thrown into the depths of the sea than that you should not accept a little one. If you can't forgive, if you won't forgive, uh, if you won't see yourself as a 10,000 talent man, and, and if you, you, even if you are, uh, and then you demand of anyone their debt to you, you shall be rejected. So, you know, th that element is still there. It, it is still there. Uh, and I think the, the interpretation is vague, intentionally, uh, because of this unclarity, purposeful unclarity. You can live on a lower level and despise your brethren and not accept them and not forgive them, uh, etc. It's just, yeah, you may be saved in the end, you'll be last in the kingdom, uh, but also it's possible that you, for all your good deeds and all your hard work, which is not a big item to Jesus anyway, uh, will simply be cast out. And that, that is how it's left, I think, purposefully vague, so that we might reflect upon those possibilities, and of course you come to the conclusion, well, <laughs> I better not despise my weaker brethren. I should rejoice that they're saved as well as me. And see ourselves as the eleventh hour people not as the people who worked so hard. Identify with the little ones. He says, I, I did you no wrong. First of all, they were all fine with the employer. He said he's going to give us a penny a day. We made the agreement, we worked our day, and we got a penny. But now, because of his attitude to little ones... Their eye clouds over, and they think he's a hard and unreasonable man. Is your eye evil? Because I am good. This is what happens so often. When people perceive the grace of God to the sinners and the weak, so the little ones, and when they perceive the kindness of gracious fellow believers to those people, Everything unlovelies itself. Their eye becomes evil. Their worldview becomes bitter. And literally, to have an evil eye is to be ungenerous. Uh, and of course, I think the idea is quoted really from Jonah uh, in chapter 4 there, um, where his eye becomes evil because God is good. God was gracious to Nineveh, and he got bitter. And so many times we have seen this, have we not? that people get terribly bitter. People who otherwise have lived very good lives start to use F-words 
and start to yell and rant and rave and scream and just their whole faces become bitter all because somebody in their church or in their fellowship or whatever started to show grace or showed grace to a little one. Yes, to the lesbos and the gays and, and, and the chain smokers and, and the this and the that and the other. If you have them in your church, you're this, that and the other. If you get a fellowship with that person, blah, 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 blah. Um, it unlovelies itself very easily. It's been the bane of my life, seeing other men's eyes, who were otherwise very upright uh, believers, and yes, 12-hour laborers, who worked very, very hard, apparently, in the vineyard, their eye became evil, because I, or others, were gracious to others, and showed grace and opened up the barriers, and the anger knows no end. The personal attacks, the, 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 the physical punching in the face by men with their big, well-marked Bibles and all the rest of it, and the F-words and spitting and all this kind of terrible behaviour that goes on from these kind of people. Their eye becomes evil because we try to be good. And, of course, you can't catch yourself because you can also have the same attitude, can you not? That, oh, God's going to accept those people? Oh, but, but that's not how it is. Those, but that woman, she's had a multiple kids. She's had six kids by six different fellas. And there I am. I kept my marriage together. And we had our kids. And they went through our problems. And, and stuck together. And, and blah, blah. And, and what? We're going to have her? No, we can't do that at all. And so you see how really it, it comes down to it. That people's eye becomes evil because we are good. And it's also from Deuteronomy chapter 15 that you see this. It's from Deuteronomy 15 that, uh, that you see this uh, again, where again you encounter this uh, term, is your eye evil because uh, I am good? Or you encounter that idea of uh, an evil eye, where Israel are warned that if your brother, just before the year of Jubilee, similar to the 11th hour, uh, wants to borrow money from you uh, just before the year of release when all debts are going to be cancelled well do not have an evil eye towards him and do not demand it of your brother Deuteronomy 15.2 in the Septuagint which is exactly what we've seen there Matthew 18 verse 28 the 10,000 talent guy was not to demand the 100 pennies from his brother so then the last shall be first the first shall be last. So it, it does impl imply that maybe these people will be in God's kingdom, but they will be the last. And there will be gradations, without question, in the kingdom of God. They will be the last, but they will still be there. Jesus even said that um, the one who shall be least in God's kingdom is he who has uh, broken some commandments and taught men so. But he'll be in the kingdom, but least. So there will be all sorts of people who will be in God's kingdom. And I'm just throwing, in this right at the, throwing this in right at the very end. I wondered if it means that some people will go into God's kingdom still having major questions. That these guys go into God's kingdom still querying the justice of God and of Jesus. But they're still saved. He concludes then this whole pretty large section 
by saying that many are called, but few are chosen. Isn't that a, you know, an odd way to finish? But I think it's not, because he's saying that, look here, salvation is by grace. And if you want a proof of grace, think about choosing or election, it's a Greek word, electos, that's used here, and predestination and the gift of grace and all that. Paul does the same in Romans. When he, when he starts talking about predestination and election, choosing and all that, he does it in the context of saying that we are saved by grace. And he quotes election, predestination, etc. as a parade example of grace. The fact that there is this element of grace and of predestination... This means that salvation absolutely is not of works, but it is of grace.